But it's not just a cry and a help in time of need, but it's asking God to act in our time of need. And so as we look at this, I want you to think about what that means for you and I as we read this lament. And we have Abby Hummel this morning read it for us from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me as we go into the word this morning. Lord, we give you thanks um, for your word. Your word that encompasses all of life, all our emotions, all the things that we experience from the highs to the lows. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this lament, as we sit in the uncomfortable moment of these 30 minutes or so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, you would teach us, and you would also, most importantly, give us hope, not in our circumstances, but because of who you are, and that you have always dealt with us bountifully. Won't that be our experience? And may your spirit work in that way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this lament this morning, um, it has a lot to do with this sense of abandonment, right? And I remember the first time I ever felt abandoned in my life. It was when I, I must have been around five or six years old, before, well, I guess five, before I ever went to grade school because I had this one uncle, or I have this one uncle, and I never liked him. Never liked him. I actually hated him at growing up as a young kid because he was this five foot five dude, but like jacked as can ever be. I mean, not only was he just like thick and huge, but he was cut and ripped. And every time our family would spend time with my aunt and uncle, he would always be like, touch this, see how big this is. And he would just instill all fear in me. And he'd lift up his shirt and be like, punch me as hard as you can. And I did not like him at all. <laughs> like, I, my parents, I don't remember doing this, but my parents would call or would tell me, I would say, call the police, he needs to go to jail. Like, I just did not like him and I always wanted him in prison for some reason. He never lifted, he never lifted or like touched me or did anything to like harm me, but he just instilled fear in me and I hated him. And the first time that my parents had to go away, guess where they put me and my two sisters in? My uncle's house. And it must have been so traumatic because I can remember it as clear as day. They dropped me off, they took us into a bedroom, and the bedroom led straight through the hallway, and I could see the entryway. And my parents left, 
And myself and my two sisters were wailing and screaming as loud as we could be because we felt like we were being abandoned, not just abandoned, but left with public enemy number one. Now, I know it's a little humorous, this sense of abandonment, but it doesn't end when we're children, right? That sense of abandonment continues even in our, into our adulthood. It could be the sense of abandonment with family, friends. But as we look today, most importantly, spiritually, with our God, in many ways, we can feel very much abandoned by our Heavenly Father as much as David does here. David is the one who pens this psalm. What's fascinating about this week versus last week is last week we are giving a very clear description of what is going on and why he writes the lament in chapter 3. But here this morning in chapter 13, there is no description. We could maybe get, get maybe, <coughs> excuse me, maybe assume some things, but I think there's a beauty in not giving us a in the specificities of what's going on in David's life. Because it helps us to say, you know what? No matter what I'm going through, whatever my specific situation is, I could read this psalm and apply it to my life. The struggles that you're going through, the pain, the sense of abandonment, we can come to this psalm and identify with what David experiences with his God. The sense of abandonment. And I want to do this in three ways. <coughs> it's actually broken up beautifully for us. The first two verses is his question. The next two verses then are his request. And then lastly... The last two verses in 5 and 6 are his song. So we'll look at his question, his request, and lastly, his song. Something to note here, which is really interesting. <coughs> the first two stanzas are actually written in five lines. The second stanza is written in four lines. And then the last stanza is written in three lines. It's, you might see it in your version translation as four lines, but it's actually three. Or in, yeah, in three. And what I think the commentator, one commentator said this, this means that the form of the poem, as well as the subject matter, moves from the tumultuous and emotional beginning, expressed in five lines, through an increasingly calm prayer, expressed in four lines, to a final expression of trust in God and harmony, expressed in three lines. In other words, this song, as it were, casts up constantly lessening waves until it becomes still as a sea when smooth as a mirror and the only motion discernible at last is that of the joyous ripple of calm repose. And that's, the, that's kind of the uh, momentum I want us to observe here. It's this tumultuous, emotional question <clears throat> but then one leads to this final place of quiet solitude and trust in the Lord. So let's first look at his question. David's question in verses 1 and 2. This question, how long? 
we all can identify, identify with it, right? But what's so fascinating about his question, he repeats it four times. How long, how long, how long, how long? But it encompasses his whole being. Do you see that? Because the first time he says, what does he ask? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It's this question of space and time. This length and this prolonged struggle. The second how long will you, will you hide your face from me? It's this one of spirituality. Hiding one's face meant that God was keeping his blessings away from David. It actually reminds me of the benediction of Aaron, right? And I've said it before, but it's may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. What is that? That is the blessing of, his, of God to his people when he shows his face to his people. But here, David is asking, how long will you hide your face from me? There's this spiritual component of how long will you keep your blessings from me? But it's also intellectual and emotional, right? Then he goes on in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul? The NIV translates that as how long will, you, will I have, will you keep, will I take thought and have sorrow in my heart all the day? There's this intellectual component of thinking and thought, but also of sorrow in his soul. It's emotional. And this is where we can even think that he is in a place of absolute depression. And that requires us to pay attention to our temperaments, right? How are we doing physically? Are there things in our lives where we need to see a paid professional counselor who can actually address some of those things? But here we see it's also engaging his intellect and his emotions. But lastly, it's also relational and spiritual. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's someone who goes against him. He feels like there are those that are totally against him, and those enemies are, against, are also people who are not with the Lord. But it's also ultimately of the enemy of the evil one, right? Of Satan, of the devil, who is the ultimate enemy. And so when David is wrestling in his heart, it's one that encompasses his whole being. How long, O oh Lord, am I going to suffer? How long am I going to feel abandoned from you? Because I'm not hearing from you. I'm not seeing you work in my life. You're withholding blessing. The enemy is against me. And when will this ever end? This question is important because it gives us the permission to ask these kinds of questions. I think we're so afraid to actually ask the hard, true, real questions that are in our heart and in our mind. Voltaire, who's an atheist, said, I am abandoned by God and man. Now, we would assume he could say that because he was an atheist. But if we or you and I said that as followers of Jesus, like, <gasps> I mean, is he even a follower of Jesus? Is he even a person of faith if they ask that question? 
We're afraid to go there. But David was a man after God's own heart. (laughs) And there is no sense of him withdrawing or feeling afraid to ask these questions. He asks it four times, how long, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? It feels like he will never find any sort of release from the Lord. But he asks it. And I think that's an important question for us to ask. Do we allow suffering to speak? Much like the CCM song, or even in our Trinity hymnal, or the songs that we sing at church. For me growing up, when I experienced some depression in my life, I did not find any Christian songs to go to. So guess where I went to? I went to secular music, because they were actually singing and speaking my heart in the midst of depression, and in the midst of struggle. When the church was so afraid to go there. But do we as a church allow suffering to speak in this church, in our community, in our friendships of faith? Sung Chan Ra wrote this book called Lamentations, a book on lament. And he says, is there a place in worship services for hearing these kinds of wailing as believers and communities give voice to anguish, anger, grief, and confusion? Our churches. Is our church a safe place to ask and lament these kinds of questions? It made me think of one of those times where, where we had all the race relations just grow in tension, right? It began with Michael Brown. And then after the shootings in Dallas, if you remember that, it came to a place where our nation just realized we were absolutely broken. And I think that happened on a Saturday evening and here I was ready to preach a sermon and I just could not shake the fact that we needed to deal with this in our church so that morning I still was wrestling do I just preach my sermon or do something else and if you if you were there I scrapped everything and I found the psalm and what we did was we just went through a lament and I opened it up for us to pray together and lament To ask these kinds of questions. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And when I have exit interviews with some of our members, that is the service they always go back to and go, that was one of the most powerful experiences for me as a part of this church. People after that service said, I didn't realize how much pain I was in until I actually prayed and lamented out loud publicly. You see, we're so afraid because we isolate ourselves in the midst of suffering and the sense of abandonment, right? We don't want anyone to know. And we hide it, we mask it, we bury it, we run away from it, we distract ourselves, we avoid it, we do whatever it takes. We medicate ourselves so that we don't have to actually experience the sense of abandonment and struggle and loss. But lament allows us to do this. It engages our whole being and allows us to ask the questions that the Lord can deal with. 
And for us who are experiencing abandonment, deep suffering, we can ask these hard questions to the Lord, but also to one another. What's amazing with this lament is that it always turns to God. Because here, for those of faith, what do we see happen here? David doesn't just ask how long to some inanimate object or to some energy force or to himself. What does he say? He goes, oh, Lord. How long, oh, Lord? This is the personal name for God, for the people of Israel. And he's asking, how long, oh, Lord? And he goes to the Lord. And to my second point, he is able to ask his request. You see, what's amazing is we may be depressed, even to the point of feeling utterly abandoned. But the fact that we feel abandoned itself means that we really know that God is actually there by asking, how long, how long, O Lord? If you remember this article that went out a few years ago, it was this Googling for God. And the number two Googling search for God was, why am I suffering? Or why is there suffering? And here we're able to see that even if a person is not of faith, we always seem to go to this higher being and ask, why am I going through suffering in my life? And here David gives us this beautiful template, an example of what it looks like to actually, in the midst of our lament, bring our request to the Lord. And he does it in three ways. Do you see this? He says, one, first is, look on me in verse 3. Consider. And so that word consider in a different translation is, look upon me. But then the second thing he asks is answer, right? He says, look on me or consider and then answer me. And then the third request he makes before God is, give light to my eyes. And this is where I actually want to focus on because Spurgeon translates, translates this, give light to my eyes, this way. He says, let the eye of faith be clear that I might see you. Give light to my eye. Give light to my eye of faith that I might see you. Isn't that what we need in the time of feeling abandoned or going through struggle? It's enlighten me. Give clarity to my eyes. Give us eyes to see you and your work at these times. I can't see it at all because of what I'm going through. But God, don't just look on me. Don't just answer me. But give me eyes of clarity to be able to see you and see the work that you have done. We're praying, light of my eyes, let us see you. If we don't see you, it's as if I'll die. And that's what he's saying. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. If I don't see you, I will die. I'm already at a place where I have nothing else and I want to give up. But I need you. And if I don't see you, if my eyes don't see you, if the eye of faith can't see you and doesn't grasp you, doesn't behold you, doesn't see some evidence of movement, I will die. 
We need him that badly. And that's what David is saying. I need you that badly. And that becomes his request. What's so interesting about this request is really when you look at his question and then you look at his request, they actually go hand in hand. Look at this. How long will it hide your face from me? Consider me. Look upon me. How and have sorrow in my heart. How long um, must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Will you forget me forever? He's saying, answer me. And then this last light, this give light to my eyes. Do you know what he's doing? He's not just listening for God. Sometimes when we just allow ourselves to listen to our hearts, it actually does not work. It backfires. Because if we let our thoughts and our minds go down this rabbit trail, we find ourselves more depressed. We find ourselves going, woe is me. But what David does is he doesn't just listen for the Lord. He actually speaks. He prays. He asks for these requests. And they are the answer that to his questions. Will you hide your face from, from me forever? If we just stay there, our soul can go into deeper, darker places. But what does he say? He says, look on me. Consider me. Will you hide your face or will you forget me forever? Will I, do I have to take counsel in my own soul? He says, answer me. And this whole thing, will you forget me forever? Give light to my eyes. You see, he is preaching to himself as much as he is praying this prayer of request. And we need to do both. We need to listen, but we also need to speak and preach to our souls. And when we do that together, the Lord begins to do things in our hearts. And that brings us to the last point. Point three is his song. Verse five and six, but, I, but you see it's that beautiful but, right? I want to say big but, but some of the children might laugh. It is, it's the hugest but you could ever come with. <laughs> I have trusted in your steadfast love my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It completely takes a change of course. There's this turning point here with the but. It's I can, I will rejoice. I will sing. I need to make a note here though, this song and this rejoicing from mourning and doubting and the sense of abandonment does not take place in real time. Do you hear me? Listen to me. Doesn't happen in real time. So when you're going through lament, you read this and you're like, why am I not at verse 5 and 6? I'm still not there yet. It's not happening in real time. The psalmist David has gone through a journey of wrestling over and over and over again, crying out to the Lord. And as he does this, he is finally able to respond in song and in trust. You see, it's an exercise of faith. And I use that word specifically and intentionally, exercise. 
when you exercise because you need to get healthy or you need to lose weight. You don't lose weight right away, do you? It's this constant wrestling, struggling, forcing yourself to find yourself lamenting, asking the questions, bringing these requests to the Lord, and that in God's timing, we can find ourselves rejoicing and in song and in trust. You see, it's an exercise of faith. And David here is able to conclude that the Lord is good. And where does he anchor his hope in? It's in his steadfast love. It's in God's character. You know what steadfast love is? It's that word hesed. It's not just of this emotional love. It's a commitment. It's this covenant love that does not waver no matter how you and I respond to God. Whether we're rebellious, we live in sin. It's God's unwavering commitment love that says no matter how you act or respond, I will be committed to you and stay faithful to you for eternity. And that commitment was made in Genesis 15 to Abraham, if you recall. And that contract was this contract where they would split an animal in half or animals in half. And Abraham or God would walk through it. And that was his commitment to say, I have made this and I have signed this contract that I will be faithful and steadfast in my love for you forever. Nothing can change that. And where does he anchor that in? Or where does he anchor? That's where he anchors his hope in. That though he feels abandoned, though he feels like God has hid his face from him for eternity, what he says is, I will trust in that commitment that you have made to us, your people. And what does he say? He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This is before the cross. It's one of physical salvation and deliverance, but it's also one of spiritual deliverance. And for us, where do we see that? Not only this contract with animals' blood being shed, split in half, but we see Christ's blood shed for us. And that is our hope as well. God's commitment, His steadfast love was not only in Genesis 15, but it was also on the cross when he shed his blood. When his body was pierced. When he was nailed to the cross. Again, we see God keep his steadfast love to us, his people. So when we ask ourselves, where are you? Why have you hid your face from me? Will you forget me forever? Why do I continue to languish in this suffering? We can trust in his steadfast love. Not only in Genesis 15, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ as he went to the cross for you and for me. And that's why he can say, I can rejoice. And that's why he can say, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, it's not our determination. <laughs> do you see that? It's not, I'm going to muster enough energy. I'm going to do enough to finally get out of this funk. But it's only because of what God has done for me and for his people. That's why I can rejoice. 
You see, has David's circumstance changed? No. But David has changed. God has refined him. God has shaped him to remind him and remember of who God is and his character, but also of his actions. Our rejoicing and singing is not in our circumstances or in our strength or in our ability, but only because of what Christ has done for you and for me. Let me just end with this story as we conclude. There was this NPR story of this couple uh, whose band's name is War and Treaty. And it's this group, uh, Michael and Tanya Trotter, Trotter, that were interviewed by NPR. <laughs> Sorry, got a little excited there, right? <laughs> uh, but Michael shares a little bit of how he got into music. And he began, actually, in the army. And he was stationed in Iraq. And he was on the front lines of battle. And he was part of this 980-plus soldier group. But out of the 980-plus, he was identified as a weak link. As a weakest link due to his visible fear of being in Iraq and being at war. And he goes on to say, I don't know what I was doing there, but I found myself stationed in Iraq on the front lines. But one of the interesting things that happened while he was stationed in Iraq, in Kuwait, was that he was in, stationed in one of Saddam Hussein's rubbled palaces. But in his rubbled palace, there was this piano that was left untouched, still operational. And he would just mess with it. He would sing. And his captain saw him play and sing. And he, this captain, basically encouraged him to pursue music. It's probably twofold, right? Music and just his visible fear of being at war. But this captain basically encouraged him to pursue music. But short time after that, this captain that encouraged him to pursue music died in a battle. And after that death, for the first time in Michael Trotter's life, he actually began to write, really write, and begin to pen music. That at this man, this captain's memorial, he wrote this song and sang it on the piano and played it. That basically did this miraculous thing amongst all those that were there to witness it. And this is what they said. They identified something miraculous that took place. These soldiers, instead of becoming overwhelmed with grief, really became overwhelmed with joy and honor of being able to say, I serve next to that fallen soldier. So they pulled Michael from the front lines and gave him a new job. Write and perform songs for all the fallen. So whenever a brother or sister in arms fell and died, Michael would speak to his buddies, uncover their story, and pen a song for their memorial. And this is what he said in his interview. It was a heavy burden about writing healing into the story. That's what laments do. 
They write healing into our story. And no matter what suffering or abandonment you go through, together as a body of Christ, we experience healing and restoration with the laments, with the questions, with the requests. But we do it together. Don't isolate yourselves because that's the exact thing we want to do. But as we sing songs, as we speak into one another's lives and our stories, we sing songs of God's faithfulness, of what he's done. And we will find hope and a steadfast love and be able to sing and be able to rejoice because he has dealt bountifully with us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you that you have given us songs to sing, that our hearts might rejoice, that we might be able to sing in the midst of our hardships, of our suffering. Lord, teach us to lament, so that, Lord, we might have hope and joy, not because of the circumstances changing, but because we could see you more clearly. So may you do that. Open up our eyes, lest we die. Give us clarity lest we die, so, Lord, we might be able to know that you are our good, good Father. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our worship, we have the opportunity to confess our faith together, and we do that every single week with our confession, and we've been going through the Heidelberg Confession, and so we have this for you this morning. I'll ask the question, and we'll respond in the bold. What must a Christian believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. One of the things that we get to do here as well is we get to rejoice and sing of what Christ has done for us. Even though we feel abandoned, even though we go through our suffering, one of the ways that we can lament here is at the table. Because as we bring our questions, as we bring our requests, God is answering and showing us. He's responding by showing us his steadfast love on the cross. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. This was his way of keeping his promise, his covenant love. So that even though we might feel abandoned, we can know that God is with us. Jesus laments with us at the table. As we sing, as we come together in worship, our song leader, Jesus, laments and sings with us. And he comes to the table and eats with us so that no 